0: This is Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. The Affordable Care Act was passed a year and a half into then President Barack Obama's tenure, and yet the conversation about how it should be changed or manipulated seems to be never ending in our state there is near constant debate over the future of Medicaid. The current discussion is about whether there should be a work requirement for most people to receive Medicaid, and there was debate in the legislature over a measure that would carve out rural areas from that work requirement. That would mean folks in cities, black folks primarily, would be required to work for Medicaid support. What are the forces at play The organizations that take care of us, hospitals, are looking at when it comes to the current state and future of health and health coverage in Michigan. Joining me now to talk more about that and other medical related issues is Mark Corvo. He is the vice president of government affairs for Henry Ford Health System. Mark, welcome to Detroit. Thank you for having me again. Mark is also a former state legislator. Uh, And also with us is Mary Zatina. She's the senior vice president of government relations at Beaumont Health. Mary, welcome to Detroit.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So let's start there with this uh, question about Medicaid, changes to Medicaid, Uh, You know, Michigan, uh, Michigan is out front in terms of uh, healthy Michigan, uh, the the Medicaid expansion, how many people are being taken care of. uh, But it seems to have sort of an uncertain future. Uh, in this state. Um, How are hospitals looking at what's going on and what are you sort of anticipating about what will happen in the
2: future? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And we are constantly looking for stability like any other industry. Um, and the, the constant uh, concerns of what either the federal administration is going to change. Uh, here at the state level, the administrations are very committed uh, to Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. and uh, Healthy Michigan plan, so uh, we're very proud of that. Um, having said that, we're coming up on election here in November, and... Mary and I you know, start talking about, you know, what's going to what happen next. So will there be an increased commitment to it or will there be a, a decreased commitment to it? So, you know, there's some current efforts now in the House on, on work requirements, and we can, we can talk about that as well. But... This will be a policy concern and and, uh, a focus for a long time to come. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, Mary?
1: Well, uh, I agree. We are looking for some stability and some certainty. Mm -hmm. We are nonprofit organizations. We're very large nonprofit organizations. We are working to be more nimble and quick but we can't change course direction <laughs> right? as quickly as, as some of the things are coming at us yeah. from the federal government and from state government. So, you know, for, for Beaumont Health, we, our North Star with the Affordable Care Act has always been, if somebody's gonna repeal it or replace it yeah. or maybe repair uh-huh. what doesn't work beautifully with it, we're watching on how does that impact healthy Michigan. When Healthy Michigan, which, by the way, is only four years old, that's pretty young for a major program that touches the lives of 700,000 Michiganders, how how does a change, a repair, a replacement, affect Healthy Michigan and those 700,000 of our fellow citizens who are covered by it? and there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. So
0: so let's take for instance the changes to the Affordable Care Act at the federal level. What what does the effect of that look like on a hospital like Beaumont?
1: Well, we're feeling a pinch in um, revenue, uh-huh. so the Affordable Care Act had a lot of provisions that tied payments to quality outcomes at a, at a very stringent level. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't perform or that person comes back to the hospital with a readmission in 30 days or less, we're not going to pay you. Huh. So that is really a squeeze. Additionally, we had new people coming to see us for the first time sure. because they finally had they a insurance. health insurance card yeah. in their pocket. and they, they it gives you some confidence to address the chronic cough you've had for months or a year so how do we train those folks about primary care mm-hmm. one of the beautiful provisions of the affordable care act was that the 10 essential health benefits and uh in order to be a qualified health plan the Obama administration said you must offer these 10 essential benefits, and that included preventive care and real important things. So finally, we have people who haven't seen a doctor, we're teaching them, you don't go to the ER. Right. You find, you know, what's, what's family medicine? Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. internal medicine? And where is my medical home? for that quarterback who's going to guide me in all the different healthcare services yeah, I need. Yeah. So, a, a big impact in changing the way we do things and a lot more regulation, which is a takeaway from our physicians for the judgment. The interpersonal communication they have directly with their patients knowing what's best, yeah. a whole lot more rules right. on how to take care of these individuals. Huh.
2: Mark, what yeah. does it look like at Henry Ford? Well, and I'll add uh, the Health Alliance Plan, our insurance uh, carrier sure. to the discussion because there's some very real effects on their ability to operate um, with some consistency and stability. But, you know, with the ACA repeal in the rearview mirror, um, that took up mo- most of 2017. But, but since then, there's been some pretty significant changes, both um, from CMS and administrative rule but the repeal of the individual mandate is one and then on the insurance side you know the uh, the lack of funding for the um, cost-sharing subsidies or the cost-sharing reductions whatever you want to call them but it had a very real effect on us. Some of it we won't see for a little while. Who really knows how many individuals will now pay, not just get it because they're, they're not made to? Mm-hmm. Some argue that mandate was a little weak to begin with so it might not have a huge effect but it's still too early to tell but on the insurance side Um, With all the instability and will the cost-sharing reductions be be, uh, upheld, Um, we finally said, you know, until there's some stability in this marketplace, we can no longer participate in that market. So we had to pull back. Now, we still have the ability to come back, but... Like we said, we said earlier, just getting some stability in the marketplace is, is important. So we're, we're going to continue oh, to predictability work for that. I mean, too. Yeah,
1: right? yeah. I mean, it's the rule book. What's the, what's the playbook? Right. <laughs> what How are, are
2: rules? we supposed to manage right. all of right. this? Right.
1: We'll, we'll change. We'll adapt. But what what are the rules yeah. for now and and for the future? And we really don't know. And I would also argue with um, the new administration in Washington, the s- the sense of normal order is anything but normal.
0: <laughs> right. We we as chaotic, government
1: right? relations professionals can't really predict mm-hmm. what's going to happen nor how it will happen, and that, yeah. that complicates our ability to serve our patients.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Mark Corvo. He's the vice president of government affairs at the Henry Ford Health System and a former state legislator. Uh, we've also got Mary Zatina here. She is the senior vice president of government relations at Beaumont Health. We are talking about the impact of the ongoing discussions about health care on hospitals. Uh, I want to change the subject a little here and talk about the opioid crisis, uh, which I, I feel like is, is becoming more and more part of uh, the national narrative on healthcare and and some other issues but i i don't know that i've heard very much from hospitals about the way this looks uh, for instance from a hospital a hospital standpoint i mean you're talking about an addiction crisis, uh, like like nothing maybe we've, we've seen before, and a lot of it has to do with, first of all, prescription, uh, uh, access to these, to, these, uh, to these drugs, but then you're also then treating the people uh, who are addicted. Mary, how has this affected a place like Boma?
1: Well, Bowman has eight hospitals. And one of the things we're doing is making sure we are aligned in our philosophies, in our prescribing protocols uh, inside of our own eight hospitals. But there is no simple solution, nor one answer, nor one cause for the opioid epidemic in southeast Michigan, in Michigan or the country. It's a lot of things. And so we see uh, our elected officials, and rightly so, saying we've got to do something about this. Um, But, we would argue, let's make sure physicians are at the table, nurses are at the table, addiction experts are at the table, and figure out what makes sense. Sense for the person who is indeed trying to get Mm -hmm. drugs that they don't really need for a chronic pain condition, but those, those laws that might be put into place to address that situation cannot tie the hands of a physician who's treating uh, end-stage cancer patient sure, sure. who needs a mm-hmm. heck of a lot of meds to deal with the pain. Yeah. So we're asking for sensible, tension, yeah. sensible policies, and uh, it really requires us all to come to the table. I don't know, Mark, what yeah, are you seeing in Henry you know, Ford?
2: I see the opioid crisis as a, an ex- excellent example of the public policy uh, case study of when you know, we're on the front lines of that problem. And at Henry Ford uh, Health System, we started very early on with internal work groups of how we were gonna address this. So, in essence, the, the private marketplace was trying to solve the problem on their own. Uh, and quite often, as you know, the legislature, sometimes it takes a while for them to get caught up or to recognize a certain problems. And then sometimes they go too fast to fix it. So, um, I'd say on the practical side, we welcomed uh, the legislation. There's, there's a lot of good things in there. At the same time, you know, as with uh, complicated public health issues, you know, some of our physicians were frustrated um, and, you know, we're now looking to work with the department to try to clarify some of these rules because that's certainly not something we want to misstep on. So, you know, simultaneously, we're trying to care for our patients on a real crisis, a very real crisis. And at the same time, trying to administratively uh, follow the rules and provide the best care for our patients. So, you know, you know, now the feds not ironically, uh, are doing the same thing. Uh, moving very quickly um, 60-some bills in the last month, trying to go all through those, and much of them are, are support and, and resources, but I know for a fact that um, some of those that get through, as they get implemented into our system, will be struggling to make sure that we're doing it right, and you know, then Mary and I will be asked to go try to fix it. So, um, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's
1: Interestingly simple. enough, the hospital systems work together pretty closely.
2: Yeah.
1: And just last month, Several of us from different hospital systems went to Washington to talk to members of the Michigan delegation about the state opioid laws that have just been passed and put in place. Hmm. So that's not usually the case that we're talking about state legislature activities with our federal congresspeople and senators. But we wanted them to know... Your Michigan healthcare providers now are working under this set of rules pertaining to opioids. So when you guys start on your set of bills in Washington, make sure you're mindful of the need for integration and at least avoid um, contradiction in, in laws. Yeah. Yeah. so it's you know it's hopefully people will feel good that we hospital systems are working together <laughs> and our our federal representatives and our state representatives are trying to work together on sensible laws
0: yeah. I want to talk about the the landscape for hospitals here in the state of Michigan um, it's tough I know that uh, to make things work and get every get everything you know lined up uh, financially um, we're still seeing lots of consolidations. Uh, is that something that consumers, or patients, should be worried about, um, the, the survivability of, of hospitals?
2: Well, I'll answer that first. I, I think one of the best things come out of the ACA, um, and we can argue whether it was a great plan, whether it's sometimes struggles to be good, but um, value-based care, we are now, as hospitals, um, I'm not going to use the word force too aggressively, but we are now judged beyond giving the care within our four walls mm-hmm. the, the healthcare care continuum, uh, continuum rather has expanded quite a bit so um, I think that's good for the consumer and because of that though you know we are always looking for deepening relationships so some of the consolidation allows us to, to be more efficient. Um, I, I don't think and Mary I'd like your thoughts on as well that the consumer, is much affected by that because you know most of our um, reimbursement is through you know Medicaid, Medicare, where the rules are set. But I think hospitals are now because they're driving towards value um, need to have these relationships and, and uh, deepening connections with with all different types of entities. Yeah, Mary?
1: I would add that um, consumers who live in rural areas should really be worrying that the one hospital they may have could close. Can't
0: can't make it, right?
1: Right. I work for Beaumont Health, Mm -hmm. which is the new name, not all that creative perhaps, but the new name of the merger of Beaumont Health System, Botsford and Oakwood. And all three of us were chugging along, (laughs) but not really thriving. We merged, we came together, we remained a nonprofit healthcare system, which is really important because that nonprofit status makes us um, tied to making sure we're doing community benefit and the kind of community health programs that keep people out of the hospital in the first place. But what it gave us is um, a margin, remember we're nonprofit, right. but we do look at excess revenue over expenses, a margin of 4%. And that allowed us finally to have some capital outlay for this extremely capital intense industry. We're able to build a whole new tower and new rooms at the Botsford Hospital, a $150 million project. Hmm. Botsford on its own would never have been able to do that that. at what is now Beaumont Farmington Hills. The uh, ER in Royal Oak, is uh, the eighth busiest er in the nation we had enough capital to redo that er and enhance it and add some rooms we have a new nicu at our dearborn hospital that's all been done with those um, extra dollars over expenses and and that has made us stronger yeah, so man. I think we're going to see more consolidation. Yeah.
2: I have no issue with the new name. I, I do take on bridge with <laughs> the new colors because the new colors. Henry Ford oh, Health sorry. is the blue and white. Uh,
0: you're all blue and white, right? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Okay. Mark Corvo, Vice President of Go- Government Affairs for Henry Ford Health Systems. Thanks for being here. Thank and you very you. much. And Mary Zatina, Senior Vice President of Government Relations for Beaumont Health. Thank you for being here. Thank
2: you, Stephen. Thank you.
0: listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've talked a lot about the need for a regional mass transit system in southeast Michigan. We've heard from local and state leaders about their support or opposition to a new plan that would bolster transit. We have heard from transit riders and the groups who lobby on their behalf, and we've heard from you, our listeners, about what you think of this issue. Now we're going to talk with someone you might not expect to be talking a lot about this, head of a major electric utility. DTE Energy CEO, Jerry Anderson, is talking a lot about this issue these days, and he's talking with other business leaders and public officials about how important it is for us to get our transit act together. Jerry Anderson, CEO of DTE Energy, thanks for being here on no, today.
3: Happy to be here, thanks for asking. Yeah,
0: so it, it is big news that, mm-hmm. uh, that you're taking such a, a public and, and vocal stance on, on this issue. Tell me why this matters specifically to the business community.
3: So a couple of years ago, um, I uh, worked uh, with my peers, pulled together a group of about 17 CEOs of the largest companies in the region. And the real purpose was to identify things that we felt needed to be pushed for the momentum of the region to continue and build, and there are about a half dozen issues we picked, and one of those was regional transit, because I got to tell you, Stephen, there's no way to slice it yeah. other than we need improvement. You right. look at the benchmarks, and we're 24th or 25th out of 25 in the largest metro areas, but I get it from my employees all the time. The transit system here doesn't work, and other employers get it too. So principally, we're behind this because we think it will be really healthy and good for the overall region. And as a group of business leaders, we wanna put our shoulders behind the things that we think fit that description.
0: So, so uh, Mark Hackle, who's the county executive in, in Macomb, and Elbrooks Patterson, who's the county executive in Oakland, are, are both saying the proposal that's on the table that, that we could vote on, I guess, in, in fall of 2018, it doesn't work. And that uh, they can't support it. Um, they, they have very specific reasons that they think it doesn't work. Mark Hackle says that transit right now works in Macomb County with the smart uh, bus system that we have. Is he wrong about that?
3: So I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts on this. First, uh, about a month and a half ago, 23 companies came out, largest companies and largest employers in the region, mm-hmm. and jointly said in an in a open letter, Uh, We need the four leaders to work together to fix this. That was then followed by the four largest hospital systems. They employ about 100,000 people. That was followed yesterday by 220 employers Mm -hmm. coming out here at Mackinac, employers for transit, that represent over a quarter million employees uh, and really the backbone of our region in terms of its economy, saying we need a solution. Now, I will tell you, we are not telling the four leaders what the plan must look like. Right. We're very clear on that. We're saying actually it's your job to get together figure and it to out. F- figure it out, define a plan that works for your constituents but also works for the region overall. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I think the business community is clear on is we need to build a much stronger regional ethic, a true ethic that understands we rise and fall together mm-hmm. and when one, one part of the region rises or falls, yeah. the rest of the region goes with it. And transit fits that description. Uh, we need each part of the region to realize that uh, many employees in Macomb live in Oakland or live in Wayne, and mm-hmm. vice versa, and when we put something in place that works well, uh, the overall region benefits. Yeah, uh,
0: you, you say that you're not trying to tell them which plan they have to have, but what do you think of the current plan as it's been described?
3: So. Rip Rapson and the Kresge Foundation uh, put up a half million dollars to hire a national class consultant mm-hmm. to come in and work with the deputies of, of the city and the three counties and Washtenaw County, actually, so four counties, to develop a plan. That plan was jointly developed and was much improved versus the plan that was uh, actually on the ballot a couple of years ago. Yeah. Now, if if there are exceptions to that plan Then my input would be, that's fine. Yeah. Then go strike compromises, create modifications, but land on a plan that moves the ball. Yeah, uh,
0: You know, I, I have felt uh, recently that we're just at an impasse that we're not going to get around with this. And, and that's after conversations with Mark Hackle, with Warren Evans, with Mayor Mike Duggan here in the city of Detroit. It, it, it seems as though you um, I mean, it is about transit, but it is also about something else. Uh, I I mean, I sense that that the tension here has grown beyond the question of how do we get people from one place to another, and it's about this community versus that community, which is a really old narrative in this region. I thought we were moving in the opposite direction, but but we seem headed to the bad old days uh, in that regard.
3: So I think there is some of that misunderstanding creeping back in that uh, is sort of a zero-sum mindset that, yeah. that hey, if, if my region uh, doesn't somehow win, then I must have lost. Right. And w- what I see when I travel around the country in the best and most vibrant regions is that at a certain point, it was often the business community that stood up and said, we need to create this, an ethic of regionalism emerged, Mm -hmm. uh, where in those regions, they had the same infighting and the same battling for economic development opportunities. And it was the business community that stood up and said, this isn't the way a region should be built or constructed or behave. We need to truly have the mindset that we all sink and swim together. We see it in the economic development arena when outsiders come in and look at our assets. Uh And one of the assets they see badly falling short is transit. Now that was most visible with Amazon, mm-hmm. but it's true with other companies that come in and look for this as well. Yeah. Uh, this
0: is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jerry Anderson. He's the CEO of DTE Energy. Um, let's talk a little about energy and, and how things are progressing policy-wise uh, in, in that sphere. Uh, the 30 by 30 ballot initiative. Uh, talk, about, talk about that and why why you were concerned uh, about that issue.
3: So 30 by 30 was a proposal by a California bi- uh, billionaire mm-hmm. to uh, push a, a ballot initiative uh, this fall that would have required 30% renewables by 2030. Mm-hmm. So it was a year ago that we came out with our pledge to reduce carbon emissions 80% and we built our plan around that. Mm-hmm. Actually, we were the first in the country to, to come out with uh, a pledge of that sort. Uh, And it's very clear that to pull that off, we are going to be investing heavily in renewables. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do from a business perspective. What I was concerned about was that we would turn energy and investment in renewables back into a fractious partisan political debate Mm -hmm. because that's the way these ballot initiatives usually go. And we had put a lot of time and energy into trying to build the understanding that this was the right direction to head and was a, the responsible direction they had, and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to see that upset. So I uh, reached out to Steyer, mm-hmm. the, the initiator, yeah. and essentially said, "I think you're going to hurt the cause, not help it, because you're going to turn this back into a partisan debate, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't go there." And fortunately, we were able to uh, get them to see that to there's a lot down. going right. You had to yeah. back down.
0: Uh, so that, this there's always this tension, I guess, in that discussion, you know, carrot versus stick, right? Uh, how much should we mandate in terms of uh, moving toward renewables and how much should we trust energy companies uh, to do it on their own? Uh, obviously, you know, I, I would expect you to fall far more on the carrot side. Uh, but But let's talk about places where you think government should be Uh, a little more aggressive or firm about renewables and how how quickly we get to uh, reliance on them.
3: So the interesting thing in Michigan is we had just passed uh, a broad piece of energy legislation Mm -hmm. in late 2016, so just a little over a year and a half ago, which... Uh, upped the renewable mandate did. and did it in a heavily bipartisan way, mm-hmm. which is the second time that broad energy legislation was passed with broad bipartisan support uh-huh. that upped the renewable mandate. I am fine with government playing that role, but yeah. I think it should be Michigan legislators elected by Michigan citizens who do it. Hmm. And it, it has worked well in our state. I will tell you this, though. Um, the, so Steyer did stand down, mm-hmm. He had an interesting input from a senior politician in another state. I won't name him, but I've gotten to know the guy, and he's gotten to know us as a company. And he went to Steyer and essentially said, Look, not every uh, energy company should be treated the same. There are some who are on the right path, doing the right things, and they should be encouraged. And there are others who clearly aren't, and sometimes, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a stick needed. So I think that was. That was uh, helpful and influential in the discussion. Uh,
0: You're also busy closing coal plants here in the state of Michigan. And an interesting dynamic that that creates is, I think, the sadness in some of the communities where those plants were a huge part of uh, the local economy. I think River Rouge. River Rouge, uh, Trenton. uh, Yeah. Uh, What are we to do about that?
3: So these coal plants are... 60 sometimes more than 60 years old and they've clearly reached the end of useful life, it's more economic for us to move on. Uh, It was interesting, I had an annual meeting where uh, an activist came in and and said uh, we really need to do something about this River Rouge power plant and Mm -hmm. so forth and I said well you know we actually have it in our plans to close the plant. They looked at me and said you can't close well, the plant. We plan. don't want you to do that. You can't right? close it. It <laughs> employs people and it pays taxes. And I said, well, there's really that's really the only option. Now yeah. we're going to work with the community. We've been working with River Rouge and are working with Trenton very, very carefully to make sure that the transition and time frame for this is something that they can manage. Mm-hmm. We're also working very closely with our employees to be able to transition them to roles in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're having a lot of retirements, and we don't believe when we close a facility we just lay a bunch of people off. We're yeah. planning it in a way that we can uh, transition them into other roles in the company. So we've got to work. These retirements have to happen, but they need to be planned both for our employees and for the community very, very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. But the sad reality is they've been an important taxpayer in those communities, and those, those days are going to wind down. Hmm.
0: Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jerry Anderson, the CEO of DTE Energy. Uh, Jerry, I want to talk about government and government structure. You're somebody who uh, I know has a fair amount of frustration with the way things work here in Michigan. Uh, are you are you eager to see maybe the ballot initiative process or something else, maybe take uh, another look at things like term limits Uh, we are going to have a a gerrymandering uh, ballot initiative it looks like on the on the books uh, or on the on the ballot in november Uh, how important are those things to the business community
3: so term limits is a fascinating (laughs) issue because it Back in the day, seemed like such a common sense improvement to the average voter. See, I
0: never thought it was. <laughs> well, I was like, this is going to create uh, an amateur legislature. You That's were exactly right. Exactly what we got.
3: You were right. <laughs> in retrospect, it was a, a horrible mistake. Yeah. And everybody who deals with our government realizes it. I have never encountered an issue where there seems to be such unanimity that we need to do something about this because it's broken our legislature and yet such a strong belief that nothing can be done. Right, right. Uh, So the day needs to come when some combination of nonprofits and government leaders and businesses stand up together and do what needs to be done to reform term limits. Yeah,
0: yeah. And what about the way we choose our legislators? Uh, You know, I mean, uh, the the, the districting process has sort of, I think, uh, come... Uh, you know uh, conspired with term limits I think to create an even more difficult situation uh, for citizens and and for businesses
3: you know I have to tell you Stephen the uh, the, the redistricting is one that I have not studied no. deeply <laughs> enough to, to weigh in on I mean I've yeah. I've heard it from both sides and yeah. I know it's a it's an issue across the country but I I have not uh, I've not been briefed in depth by my people on it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Jerry Anderson, CEO of DTE Energy. Always great to talk to you.
3: Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for being here.
0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. When Detroit's famed Fisher Building sold a few years ago for $12 million, the men behind the purchase say they were in shock. The two men behind the platform development firm say they didn't expect to win the bid and knew they had a massive project on their hands when they won the Albert Kahn building at auction. The Fisher Building is not the only ambitious project undertaken by the platform. They're also trying to redevelop neighborhoods in Detroit with a consciousness toward the community and residents that's rarely observed by big money investors. Here to talk more about the platform's unique brand of investment in the age of big Detroit development is Dietrich Knorr, the president and CEO. Dietrich, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Well, thank you very much. Yeah.
0: So let's let's talk about this Fisher Building uh, purchase. I've heard the story, but uh, I think our listeners would enjoy knowing how you accidentally bought a building?
4: It was twelve point eight. million. It was $12.8 million. Dollars. Okay, okay. And we acquired um, the Fisher Building, the Kahn Building, uh-huh. and 2,061 parking uh, stalls. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, uh, and, and I can tell this story only because the uh, w- one of the other bidders went on radio post-auction. And talked about and it. And told his story. So yeah. I don't know his name uh, so I I hope he will forgive me for um, (laughs) repeating the story Uh, but really what happened is that we had registered to bid Mm -hmm. and uh, as you may know it goes in hundred thousand dollar increments once you reach the limit which I Mm -hmm. believe was eight million and there was a time limit also I think it was noon Mm -hmm. And then after that, it just kept going uh, in hundred million, in $100,000 increments. And every time you got to the very end of the time clock, the auctioneer, who was somewhere in the background in California, added three or four minutes back to the clock. And right? so it went on and on and on. And <laughs> finally, we are at $10.7 million. And one other bidder... Uh, decided to type in 12 million Mm -hmm. so he departed from the sort of tradition of clicking along at a hundred thousand (laughs) and he added uh, 1.3 million to the to the ticket and we all looked at each other and high-fived and like okay here we go now this thing is going to start running Mm -hmm. and so in order to play along I typed in 10 point excuse me uh, I typed in uh, wait a minute 12.2 million Mm -hmm. and um, and then I was waiting uh, for something to happen. Because, I mean, he, he raised the price from 10.7 to 12. And right. now I typed in 12.2. And um, and he, uh, as it turns out, and again, I only know this because he went on the radio mm-hmm. afterwards. He mm-hmm. he ended up typing in 13 billion. So he added three too many zeros. zeros. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that the the system rejected it because it was a nonsensical number. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was trying to backspace But he tried to do this literally with five seconds left on the clock. And we're watching the clock go Mm -hmm. down in four, Mm -hmm. five, you know, three, two, one, (laughs) zero. And boom, here's my email. And it says you are the winning bid. Wow. And, um, you know, so we ended up uh, acquiring this, including the uh, premium, uh, the bidder's premium. Mm -hmm. uh, It ended up being 12.8 million. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And actually, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are very... Still very happy that we decided to do this deal. Mm -hmm. This deal was done in partnership with a capital partner from New York, Mm -hmm. HFZ Capital. Um, And also uh, John Rear is a a, a capital partner in it. And then Peter Cummings, who is also, of course, my partner in the the platform. platform. And um, looking back on it, you know, it's a massive undertaking um, to take a building like this and try to revitalize it. Mm -hmm. But it's also very gratifying um, and really, um, you know, Everything we've done at the platform since, we have really wrapped around the, the Fisher building. Uh-huh, and so uh-huh. in, in many ways, we, we've uh, engaged and have on our team a, a very talented uh, New York-based um, branding uh, strategist. His name is Everard Findlay. And Everard helped us to position the building as the beacon for Detroit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you look at the map of Detroit, <coughs> you'll find out that the Fisher Building is the geographic center, the center. of sure. the city, which yeah. is also why New Center is called New Center, because right. it, it <laughs> right. you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't grow across the river, so they grew into a new center. Mm-hmm. <coughs> mm-hmm. So, so we positioned the building early on as the beacon for Detroit, as a, uh, as a way to communicate from the city center to the neighborhoods. So, uh, we've had since, um, since then several beacon projects, mm-hmm. as we call them, mm-hmm. in the building. The first one we opened up in November 2016, where we celebrated uh, makers and change makers uh, from the neighborhoods of Detroit, and that was a huge success. Uh-huh. Uh, currently we have an exhibition in the building um, featuring photographs from Michel Arnaud from his book The Dream is Now. Yeah. But Everard also uh, came up with the with the idea of a half pipe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, a little over a year ago we had a half pipe in the building in the building right? And we had uh, <laughs> underground resistance, you know, the techno guys they they were in the building, you know, playing music and then we had 4 days of Uh, Of uh, skaters and bikers in the Fisher building (laughs) and it was a it was truly a um, cross-cultural event right and Mm -hmm. um, just a lot of fun to do these things Uh,
0: I like the way that you've sort of explicated that approach to development in the in the city that the platform is is, uh, embracing let's talk now about some of those neighborhood projects that you're involved in and and the approach there this idea of really engaging with uh, the people who are already in those spaces uh, about how change can unfold and how it can include uh, lots, of different, uh, lots of different people.
4: Yeah, early on when we uh, formed a company, Peter and I sat down and um, agreed on three missions. Uh, the first mission was focused on creating large-scale mixed-use residential communities mm-hmm. uh, that have sensitivities to uh, you know, uh, inclusivity and, and, uh, and, and cr- really creating integrated communities. Um, uh, but also with an eye towards uh, creating a scale that will attract you know, institutional capital to the city. Our second mission was focused on neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we did that from a conviction that um we cannot bring detroit along in the long run anyway if we don't bring the neighborhoods along mm-hmm. and i think everybody at this point agrees with that and the city is you know putting forth very good initiatives mm-hmm. to to support development in the neighborhoods uh early on when we decided that we we looked at um old redford brightmore uh, which is a place where the uh, Fisher Foundation has you know spent decades spent a lot of, of, a lot of time, time and effort and and support um, so we own uh, property on Grand River and Lazar and are actively in development on uh, you know designing it and and but also very much integrating it with the community and figuring out you know what what does everybody want and mm-hmm. how do we create something here that is well received mm-hmm. the second um, Neighborhood is one that I'm passionate about. It's Island View. Um, I started going to a church there on um, Lafayette and Grand Boulevard. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's an Episcopal church, Church of the Messiah. I know that church well, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, that has been my become my community. And so, again, when we looked for okay, which neighborhoods do we want to do work in, I said, well, why don't we do some work here because I know the I know the community mm-hmm. pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so we we um, we are in the process of um, of Working through development plans with the city right now and the Land Bank to um, rehabilitate uh, and bring back to use, and also put some new construction on the site, uh, which is located just north—excuse me, yeah, just north of Jefferson, mm-hmm. between Jefferson and Congress, right, on right. the east side of Grand Boulevard. So there's a beautiful old mansion that has been abandoned for for decades, um, and. Some other structures that we would rehab and then fill in some new construction um, for really uh, community housing. Fifty mm-hmm. percent uh, of those units uh, want to be at a at a deeply affordable level, mm-hmm. so we'll will we'll, we'll look for creating this uh, community that is mixed in income, uh, and uh, and and also see whether we can provide some incubator retail uh, space so that the. A community can um, can put some, you know, startup retail businesses there. So that's that's part of the neighborhood work that we that we like doing. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: this is Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dietrich Nor. He's the president and CEO of the platform development firm in Detroit. We're talking about Detroit development, neighborhoods, uh, and other issues. Uh, Dietrich, why Detroit for you? I'm <laughs> um, you're you're a relative newcomer uh, to our city, but but you've come here and and really dug in. I feel like uh, in terms of uh, being part of the narrative that's unfolding in the, in the city. How how did you come to to be a Detroiter?
4: Hmm. That's an interesting question. So I um, I really uh, pointed back to my experience at Church of the Messiah, mm-hmm. um, and and it was actually a a letter that was written by the Episcopal Bishop in Detroit to surrounding parishes okay. that said, you know, you really have to come to, to Church of the Messiah and, and check it out. It's a church that was pretty much close to uh, shutting down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, Pastor Barry Randolph uh, came in and essentially uh, heard the calling to, to take care of the youth and created youth programming and and uh, and a uh, and a church service that attracted uh, you know the surrounding community sure. and today you know I mean on any given Sunday I think we'll have attendance there of 150 to 200 people mm-hmm. and and 50 percent of them are young African American men, men right uh, yeah. between the ages of 16 and 25 and uh, you know there's uh, Amazing people that work at the church. Uh, Coach Terry is one of them. I mean, he is the one who provides the access to the basketball court. And, yeah. But if you want to play basketball, you also have to go to church, yeah. and and you have to, uh, you know, do some uh, some spiritual uh, growth. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a it's a really um, in a very welcoming place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been immediately uh, welcomed there, uh, even though I drive in on Sunday morning from mm-hmm. the suburbs. Mm-hmm. right? But So that experience, I think, um, really introduced me to Detroit. I uh-huh. then started driving around. I got to know the neighborhoods. I learned the geography of the city. I learned the, uh, you know, all the attributes and all the challenges of Detroit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've lived most of my U.S. life in Chicago, yeah. um, and what I like about Detroit is that you cannot escape its challenges. Mm-hmm. You have to face them, because mm-hmm. you drive through them. Yes, yeah. uh, It's not like Chicago, where if you choose not to go on the south side, you sure. can do that. You can avoid it. Uh, in Detroit, it's different. And um, But then I learned about Detroit's history and culture and the arts and its people and its Grit and its, um, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and all, all of that combined uh, really um, made me feel really at home here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I have, you know, I'm married with five kids. I, no, no <laughs> none of us would ever leave here again. I yeah. mean, we've all declared this to be our this home. This is your home, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, <clears throat> how much of what you guys are doing is about development, and and how much is it? About trying to sell a new vision of development, uh, how much are you trying to influence other people who you know who want to make things uh, better or different here in in the
4: city? Don't know that I want to say that we want to influence other people. We mm-hmm. want to do what what we what we think is right. Mm-hmm. And yes, um, we are very much a for-profit company. Um, I, in fact, believe very strongly that in order to sustain a city, mm-hmm. you need to find uh, economical, economically viable solutions. Um, so, so the question really is, you know, what is an economically viable solution? Is it profit tomorrow at a 3x mm-hmm. or is it profit in 10 years from now at a 2x? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sort of a longer perspective, um, focusing in on w- what is important in the future city. Uh, it has to do with, you know, who should, who, 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 who is there, mm-hmm. who should s- certainly, you know, who, who needs to stay. I right. mean, this is always this constant tugging and pulling on, gotcha. on, uh, yeah. on uh, you know, displacement. And um, I think the... Um, The real challenge is to find development solutions that allow uh, people to stay, that are inclusive in nature, uh, but yet, you know, show, you know, what life is like in the future city. You know, where we talk about things like gun violence and, you know, racial integration and uh, education and things like that, income levels and... um, so so a focus on what we sometimes refer to as the double bottom line is mm-hmm. some is, a, is something that we think about a lot mm-hmm. uh, is it is it all about the monetary profit or is there also a um, you know a, a profit that is you know that is embedded in social impact yeah. um, and so again as um, we are not a nonprofit we're not a, we're not a we're not a cdc we're mm-hmm. not a 501c3 we're just a company that is looking to uh, develop really good real estate for really good um, uh, you know tenants and residents and 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 people that uh, you know that want to live together yeah uh, that that term economically
0: viable is really important right now in the city in the discussion about development a lot of developers still say uh, that without massive subsidy or some other uh, offsetting influence it's just not it's not economically viable to do development in Detroit, how are you able, I guess, to, to be able to say, well, we're going to measure that a little differently, um, and, and we can define that as, as you say, you know, 10 years at 2x as opposed to two years at 3x.
4: It's not so much us defining it, it's more us finding capital that Mm -hmm. will define it with us. That will invest in that idea. Exactly. So I think we we very much have um, developments that are uh, focused on, you know, generating a a relatively quick profit Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we have developments where we think about, you know, hey, if we can hold this for five, ten years and if we generate a, you know, a, a... a single-digit return on our capital, uh, but have really contributed to the uh, regeneration sure. of of uh, of the neighborhood. Well, then that would be a good outcome. And it really depends more on, again, on what the capital needs as opposed to what we what we say it should be. Sure.
0: Okay, Dietrich nor President and CEO of the Platform Development Firm in Detroit. Congratulations on all your work, and we'll keep watching that. Uh, but thanks very much for being
4: here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's going to be it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit right Today is produced by Laura Weber-Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevathan. And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. The Detroit Today theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.